these test engineers are checking out a sophisticated collection of telescopes, gyroscopes, and electronics for Project Apollo. This guidance and navigation system will be mounted in an Apollo spacecraft to aid our three astronauts on their voyage to the moon and return. The miniaturized computer at the very heart of this system is our story today on Science Reporter. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001, A Space Podyssey. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through Voice Print Identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. You may have heard of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, big release from the last year, which is making the press rounds for the Oscar campaign this year. Our own Tar, which we've discussed before with Kate Blanchett, is directed by uh, Todd Field is doing quite well, getting a lot of good recognition. In a recent interview, the director of uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Sima, I believe it was also with her DP, uh, Claire Mathen. There's been a lot of talk about this movie and the photography of it, the sumptuous, naturalistic photography, period photography. There have been parallels made to Barry Lyndon. So in this interview with Vox, Celine Sima says... Say that three times fast. Celine Sima <laughs> says, you invent your own way of lighting things, which is a lesson you can learn from Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, end quote. Uh, John Alcott, by the way, was the director of photography on Barry Lyndon. And as we talked about before, the special lenses that they got from NASA. Yes, for those uh, super low light scenes, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> F like point or something cutting edge absolutely even though they were shooting in a tavern from what two three hundred years ago yeah exactly <laughs> making the past come alive with the newest technology oh man all of course uh, made possible by his relationship with nasa due to this film exactly and those scenes if you haven't seen them they're so warm and so vibrant mm-hmm. and couldn't have been recreated with any kind of like digital touch-up or uh, it is just a, a beautiful and uh, we should um explain i guess that kubrick and alcott's mantra here was to maintain the realistic lighting scenarios as much as possible so you would light with candlelight and natural light so you have the sun and you have candles. And wow. So, you know, and this is in a period in the 70s where we're dealing with, with film stock, which was getting better, better and cheaper at the same time, somewhat better looking and cheaper looking at the same time mm. also. But part of that contradiction also meant that people were still walking around, yeah, with, with these big 2K, 10K lights. Yeah, you just wouldn't be able to get the exposure. Absolutely. Mm. And yet... They managed to accomplish it, which you can see at the uh, Kubrick exhibit if Gotta you're visit. in Turkey right now. Got to visit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It may have moved on since then. We need to check. Yeah. See where it is. It may be. It may be en route. Uh, it makes its way. Yeah. Anyone. I'd love to go. Yeah. Anyone who's on the cargo ship with the stuff. Yeah. Give us know. a heads up. Mm-hmm. Please. Making a port of call.
Opportunity landed today on 2004. Oh, I remember that well. Uh, yeah. Did you hear about Insight? No. Insight's done. They kind of figured. They did two taps, mm -hmm. I think a few days apart, and it didn't do anything. Yeah. Covered itself up in dust, unfortunately. It was a pretty successful mission, though, all things considered. I just, I wish there has to be some kind of solution for these solar panels. Even if it was just, like, what if they put something over top of the solar panel, and mm -hmm. then they put, like, a brush yeah. over top of that, mm -hmm. that just... Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure some... Right. I'm, I'm sure that they've thought about That's this, true, and sure. they just haven't been able to implement it, but dang. Yeah. That's the second or third of those that we've lost to just dust yeah, buildup yeah. recently. So I'm pretty sure um, opportunity. Mm. I think we lost opportunity, and the ones that run on RTGs, they're good. Well, I mean, yeah, but we also have to produce very volatile <laughs> fuels for them to. to but make then, it work. if you can do that, and they can make it, do you think it's possible to put compressed air or something I near was, the panels? I was thinking to about that too, off? and. Man, it just seems like it would. The I don't know. In uh, and out be a problem. Frustrating. It is though. You know, seems. You know, they had to. One, they had to have known because mm -hmm. they've lost craft to this before. Mm -hmm. it, there's got to be either a windshield wiper. That that's exactly what I was thinking. One that would just. Now, if it was directly on the panel, the coarseness of the sand and everything would probably scratch it and cause the same problem. Because that's what I was thinking initially. But that's why I was thinking, like, if they put just a, a very transparent, high-resistant mm -hmm. plastic of some sort yeah. over top of it, and they could wipe that and not degrade the solar cells. Yeah. T-minus 10 seconds, counting. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Zero ignition lift off the MA six vehicle has lifted off. The MA six vehicle has lifted off. Trajectory looks good. Moving toward altitude 100 miles and speed 17,500 miles an hour for a planned space flight that will take Colonel John Glenn around the world in 90 minutes. Trajectory AOK -OK reports Mercury Control. History perhaps being written at this moment here at Cape Canaveral as Project Mercury reaches a climax with its launching operation. And now one minute out, about 10 miles high, speed beginning to pick up into the thousands of miles an hour range in contrail. When we're first starting to get into the space race, we're having a similar situation that we did during World War II with the ENIAC women because we have people who are calculating trajectories by hand. Computers. Who are computers by trade, their actual title. One of those was Katherine Johnson. From the beginning, she said, I want to be a research mathematician. We knew that she worked at Langley. 
Uh, it wasn't a discussion of what she did. We just knew it was math. And we all did well in math. She would never brag on herself. And most of our knowledge came from us seeing something and then coming home and saying, Mom, this book says you did A, B, and C. And that's basically how we started getting our own history of our mom and what she did. When they first uh, switched over to electronic computers, a lot of people, because they were so new, didn't trust the calculations that they produced. They would want a mathematician to check behind the computer until um, they gained some sort of credence here at the center. Presented to Katherine G. Johnson, this flag was carried aboard the fourth flight of Columbia in recognition of your personal contribution toward making space available. The awards that she has received have been many, but some of the most meaningful ones for her were the letters she would get from young school children. Uh, and one little girl called her long distance and after talking to her and all, she said, are you still alive? <laughs> I started out working on airplanes because when I went there, that's what it was, the National right. Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Uh, when the space program came along, I just happened to be working with guys, and when they had briefings on it, I asked permission to go. And they said, well, the girls don't usually go. And I said, well, is there a law? They said, no. I said, well, so then my boss said, let her go. And I began attending the briefings. I was, you were already doing the work, but you didn't know exactly what it was. And gradually I did more, and they'd do something that I knew more about the geometry of the program, all about the mapping to the here and there and this. So it was very, a very easy transition. We think of computers as being electronic devices. But back then, they, and, and now we talk about human error, we tend more to trust the electronic answer than we do the human answer. But back then, it sounds like they really trusted the human answer more. They were more suspicious yes. of the electronic answer. Yes, in particular, when uh, John Glenn was to be the first astronaut to go up into the atmosphere and come back and they wanted him to come back in a special place and that was what I did. I, I computed his trajectory and uh, from then on anytime they were going to compute trajectories they were given mostly all of them to my branch and I did most of the work on those by hand but when he got ready to go, he said, call her. <laughs> and if she says the computer's right, I'll take it. The enormity of that must have been quite something. It was an assignment, and it was simple. You, you had to consider the rotation of the Earth. Equally important when we were going to the moon, you had to know the location of the moon, where it was when you took off it where it was when you got there, say the moon is going that way and you're going, you were going this way because you want to intersect the moon in a certain way. It was intricate, but it was possible. There's now a Katherine Johnson Independent Verification and Validation Facility in Fairmont, West Virginia, named for, it's actually a software safeguarding uh, program, so very apt. Amazing. Yeah. 
I was always around people who were learning something. I liked to learn. Mm. Whether it's energy or computers or telecommunications, today's technological innovations will certainly shape tomorrow's world. To get a sneak preview of things to come, we spoke with a pioneer of the electronics industry. Dr. Robert Noyce is vice chairman of Intel Corporation, a billion-dollar firm that develops and manufactures semiconductors, computer devices, and systems. After receiving his doctorate from MIT, Noyce played a pivotal role in developing the modern transistor, the integrated circuit, the solid-state memory, and the microprocessor, all of which have revolutionized modern technology. We asked him to share his views on how technology will affect the way we work in the future. I think the most important thing about what has happened in the integrated circuit business, the computer business, is that it has made computing power very, very inexpensive. Each of us has his, our own calculator now. Um, there's been a lot of concern that this might turn us all into morons. It might be the same thing as suggesting, however, that the steam engine would all turn us all into jellyfish. That indeed the availability of this kind of equipment has enhanced our lives, not uh, detracted from it. As we look on into the future, we're going to find that we can, in effect, put ourselves wherever we want to be without moving. We can create the environment that we want around us. For instance, if I look out on the road there, we find most of the cars that are driving by are not carrying goods, they're carrying brains, trying to take the brain to the place where the work is to be done. With modern communications and the extension of what we can see in communications and in computer power, in getting information transferred back and forth, there is no reason why you could not carry on this interview at home, at your office, with me at my office, etc. And I think that as we look farther into the future, we're going to find that people will live, live where it is conducive to live, not where it is conducive to work. From one piece of silicone, this guy, Robert Noyes, created the Fairchild Semiconductor. One piece of silicone chemically treated to make components that stick out these cone shapes and tunnels. Suddenly you have a, a circuit board the size of your fingernail. This thing can be ready-made, it's hardwired, it's ready to connect. Did they get the form factor down with this guy? What kind of volumetric proportions are we talking about? Let's look it up, shall we? Let's do that. Yes. Let's do that. The first batch of a hundred of these chips were actually directly placed into a computer inside the B-70 bomber. Whoa. And 100 were sold to IBM for $150 a piece? $150 a piece. They were also used as a guidance system for a ballistic missile. Whoa. 1958. This had to have been... I'm not real Cold storied on older aircraft as far as electronics, but seems like this may be one of the first real like CPU integrations to a flying fortress. I mean, these B-70s are, they're huge. Look at that, Valkyrie. It, it was kind of the precursor to like our high-altitude stealth craft. NASA had actually used it, as well as the Air Force. Oh, this, really? This, this aircraft. Mach 3 supersonic bomber. Did you come across this, Autonetics? They 
produce various avionics. Oh, they even made an inertial system for submarines and IBCMs. Whoa. Lots of... Lots of missile guidance going on here. I mean, that makes sense because it's unmanned. These were the first almost essentially like drones. Once they launched, they weren't remote controlled. They were guided missiles like they had the capability of flying themselves to where they needed to go. I wonder what the margin of error was. (laughs) Let's hope it was like Irma. So we talk about that, um, but there, there have been... You know, several. I can't remember what the term is. When a nuke is accidentally dropped, mm-hmm. and that's happened several, several times. And they most of the time they don't detonate. But we've lost several nuclear either either ICBMs or plane dropped ones mm-hmm. because of either mission failures or instrument failures or something like that. Mm. Terrifying. It is terrifying, and it really does it. This is a fair point. I kind of want to, I kind of want to talk about this a yeah. little later because of how 2010 starts and what the film 2001 doesn't tell you, but the book does describe as essentially a nuclear holdup. Every country is capable of launching intercontinental nuclear strikes via these satellites that are orbiting the earth almost in like a blanket fashion maybe brought out of the fears of the cold war obviously we had had some demonstrable evidence that if somebody were to launch one of these potentially like city killer or larger atomic loads we could start an irreversible nuclear holocaust and the book really makes that a, a big point. We're able to travel and we're able to do all these things in space and we've advanced as a culture, like a human culture. However, we're still stuck in this, like everyone holding each other up with the threat of like the press of a button could end civilization as we know it. The development of how the the demonstration of a perfect AI, one that doesn't make any wrong decisions mm, whatsoever, mm, never makes a mm, never makes an, an error. So you can imagine that they've got HAL 9000s on these nuclear platforms and nation capitals that are fortified for nuclear defenses. Everyone's got a finger on the trigger. And what this movie is really trying to show in a very, very, you know, ephemeral and existential way is that we need to be reborn. Mm -hmm. We don't need to kill each other. We need to rethink everything that we know and not use this technology for the destruction of our culture. This technology was given to us as a boon, a boon from the gods, so to speak. We advanced from the club thumping hard lifestyle to advanced civilization that brings so much more social complexities and uh, things for us to enjoy and discover and absolutely the the allegory of the weapons race and the ability for us to also have extreme leisure and 
uh, awe of yeah. our surroundings. Yeah, it's um, it's a complex dance that I think is still applicable today. We still see it. I mean, there's people mm-hmm. shooting each other in the streets, but there's also the ability to go into space as a civilian. What we're doing now with weaponizing quantum computers that was nuclear weapons then transformed into the space race with positive i think it's it's kind of frustrating that yeah we we brutalized and destroyed ourselves to create our our ability to get to the next place but at what cost and that that's a big human flaw of, of just like not taking into account everybody involved and and just to to plow through and and make it happen kubrick had just come from dr strangelove just come to this and i mean nuclear threats and i mean that's so it's prevalent as fun as it is yeah it's still it was a very heady topic he was gonna do it as you know as as the drama that the book was that it was based on uh not countdown but whatever it was called something like that mm. but then he realized reading into it it was so absurd that it could only be a comedy <laughs> that's what it was going to be a very horrifying dark comedy in life it would be an art too you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb the bomb Dimitri the hydrogen bomb Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? And Clark had always had a, a social conscience in his work. They had just gone through the Cuban Missile Crisis, the whole world had. Now we're siphoning this energy into space, upwards. Well, guess what? You're going to need an onboard computer for your spacecraft. Yes calculate this guidance orbit systems your trajectory you yeah. gotta have an onboard guidance the it's so fascinating to me that all of these technological leaps have been for either missile guidance systems um, we were just talking about how they're using it for velocity like for weapon firing mm-hmm. plotting trajectories i mean it's a war machine and then later down the road you know we we get things like gps and we never would have used that if it weren't for using it to deploy into our armed forces. So we've got something that is built into every single one of our personal devices. Uh, satellites, hundreds and hundreds of them orbiting and constantly relaying data back and forth of locations. This was a military piece of hardware. Fairchild Semiconductor, yeah. To, to come back around to them they, they were that's they were in charge of deploying it into the submarines this stuff is too expensive for business right now so we're totally another reason why we're still in the military industrial complex and government complex for all of these things but 
NASA and the Pentagon really pushed hard in this technology over the course of the 60s. And uh, this process reduced size, made these things easier to produce. What was $1,000 in 1960, each year the components doubled. And, and by 1970, doubled they cost in, pennies. Doubled in efficiency mm-hmm. and lowered in price. And lowered in price. Yes, yes. At the time... The smallest computer in the world was the one that was built by NASA for Apollo 11. Amazing. Today, we're at the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory, which has been given design responsibility for this guidance and navigation system, which will direct our Apollo spacecraft on the way to the moon and back. At one time, the direction of the rising sun, or perhaps the winding riverbed was all that man needed in his restless search for a new land. Centuries later, the quadrant and the magnetic compass guided his way even across the open sea, even after familiar landmarks had long since disappeared. But today we speak of traversing a million miles of empty space where there is no north nor south, no rising nor setting sun, not even any up or down. It's an extremely complicated task requiring many, many measurements and millions of calculations. As you can see from this Apollo flight plan, there are several critical maneuvers that have to be performed. After the Apollo spacecraft reaches its Earth orbit, it must be injected into a translunar trajectory at just the right place in time and space. Someone has compared it to shooting at a moving target from a revolving platform which is mounted on a train which is going around a curve. The computer navigated orbit on the dark side of the moon with no contact from Houston or anybody on Earth. They needed a reliable system. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The delay is too long. You can't send remote signals and and be accurate at all at that distance, which is crazy because that's not even that far away. It is. Like radio waves are actually pretty slow when it comes Mm -hmm. down to it. And uh, they they needed basically... immediate control of that craft uh, and especially as we saw with it they've had to make some landing decisions very quickly and uh waiting on a command from houston they'd be just a, a smear on the crater to think of that as being at the time the, the world's smallest computer it was the world's smallest computer because down to the very inch that they were trying to shave off with a razor to squeeze it into this thing with these three guys because I mean, you got Michael Collins, you got Buzz Aldrin, you got Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to put the computer? Yeah. This is a tiny thing. We've both been in, you know, simulated cockpits of this thing. It's it's tiny. Insane to think that in the beginning of the decade, and when you're wheeling out this giant CPU with six sandwiches. people the size of a giant, they were eating ham and cheese sandwiches <laughs> in this bad boy. I don't know how. <laughs> Like, I would have taken something through a straw at that point. <laughs> I needed the tray with all the different straws yeah, not coming the fish, out of it. but everything else will try. Yeah, not the fish. <laughs> I'll pass. That we see a real display now. That's a good demonstration of how uh, crew has the interface with the computer, talking to the uh, programs and all that we have in the computer. Well, that's right, Charlie. Sometimes we tell this thing, and sometimes we tell this thing. Mostly it talks to us. The computer can position the spacecraft, turn on the motors, and steer it, then shut the motors off. Will you be coasting on a new and corrected path? That's right. 
To see the Apollo guidance and navigation system in operation, we visited the system's test laboratory and talked with Mr. Ramon Alonso, assistant director of the instrumentation laboratory. One of the interesting aspects of the guidance system is the way in which the astronaut controls the guidance equipment through the computer. And he does so by means of the display and keyboard, which is a subsystem. There are two instances of the display and keyboard. One is with the rest of the navigation equipment in the lower equipment bay. And the other is near the couches where the astronauts can operate the computer without leaving their couches. The system of codes used is reasonably simple. It consists of a numeric verb and a numerical noun. These are little sentences made of numbers, then? Essentially, uh, if you straight a bit. The, an example of it might be a verb, 16, which is continuous display in decimal, and a noun, which is time. I picked these. I know it worked. I've now told the computer what I want, but I'm not, I have not yet told it to go ahead and do what I want. When I press Enter, the computer proceeds to display time, and it does so, giving me times from launch, perhaps, in hours and hundreds of hours, 98.56 hours from launch. And it also gives me a fine view of the low order part of the time in seconds and hundreds of seconds. That is useful occasionally. The computer will continue to display the information until told otherwise. And it's told otherwise by another verb. In this case, the verb is terminate, 34. It's now forgotten that command. Another example of the use of the computer might be to position the optics. Now, that is something that can be done manually and usually would be, but it affords us a good view as to how the computer is operated. The optics are now pointing in a certain direction, and I want to change that direction to another target. And I will invoke a verb, which is point, verb 41, and a noun, which is optics, noun 55. Point the telescope. Point mm -hmm. the telescope. When I press enter, the computer then proceeds to request the angle to which I wish the optics pointed. Well, the numbers have changed, and now they're flashing, aren't they? That's right. The flashing indicates that action is requested off the operator, and the verb and nouns have changed to tell the operator what it is that is expected of. Verb 21 is load, load the first component, the first angle. And noun 57, it used to be 55, is the angle. 55 was mm -hmm. the telescope, and 57 is the angle which the telescope makes. In this case, the angle I want is 180 degrees. And I enter that, and now it asks for the second angle. 22. Right. Second angle is plus 325. Now, when I press enter, the camera, which will come close to the eyepiece, will see the telescope slew and point to another target. As you can see, the crosshairs were lined up on the edge of the rightmost of the two targets. And the computer is now driving the optics telescope with relation to the spacecraft, and it's aligning it on the rightmost of this pair of targets. And there you can see the crosshairs right in the middle of the target. This is a microcircuit gate. 4,300 of these are used in the computer to make up this uh, entire segment. These are packaged together tightly. They fit in a fairly small space and are interconnected in separate modules in uh, one side of the computer. The Apollo computers are manufactured by the Raytheon Company in Waltham, Massachusetts. The computer itself consists of two trays, one containing logic modules, the other memory modules. But see, we're sitting here thinking about this stuff in the next room, and in all the rooms around us, in fact, the same system, you know, that was on the Discovery, and that's the HAL 9000. Look at this thing. So here's the console. It's, it's a little fuzzy. 
but you can still make out a little bit of the arrays. Oh, cool. So that was the initial design. I'm guessing after Kubrick had talked to I.J. Good and some other people by this point, and, and Clark, and Clark. So much detail. But it is, isn't it? And and so you're thinking there's a logical component to this that, like, we look at it now and we think, yeah, well, this is hilarious because computers are so big in this and clunky. And you think, well, that's what they look like at the time. Well, no, they're not. It's not what it looked like at the time. That's really futuristic yeah. and small yeah. <laughs> compared to what was there at the time. And also, when they were watching the news on mm-hmm. their tablets. Yeah, they're watching news on their tablets. On their iPad 1. <laughs> if you look at the stations now, really, Hal is like Siri. He's just yeah. a little thing with a camera and a microphone every few hundred yards and you've got a bunch of screens everywhere but you don't have a bunch of wheels and magnetic tapes you have holographic (laughs) systems yeah little clear plastic cartridges um yeah it's cool because i imagine storing data on something like a crystal just seems like with its articulate lattices and everything we've talked about storing data on organic molecules which is also very fascinating because there's so many little bits and bobs to to these structures that are actually very easy to keep stable and um, we're able to retrieve data from them very quickly but and the idea that Kubrick was thinking of universal storage in AI with the idea of the universe storing our activities in our DNA, just like sound waves that echo on in space forever. So he would have loved this stuff going on right now. He would have been crushing it with all kinds of ideas for movies about like uh, uh, genetic crisping and things like that. Yeah, true pioneer. Truly. We, we go into that room sometimes. It's a clean room. We definitely can't eat hot fries in there. <laughs> but we have, um, just like your T-shirt has, we have the memory terminal. That's right. Wes has got a great T-shirt on of the memory terminal and the holographic quadrangles. If you pull most of the terminals out, the song Daisy just starts playing um, seemingly all around you. <laughs> it's fun once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, having experienced it multiple times as a, a demonstrator, I, I, I can say I, I don't. I don't recommend. It's this. not a good song to get stuck in your head, especially not his rendition. <laughs> but this is where we're trying to get to with the quantum, right? Is yeah to a holographic level of recall. Yes. In and out, and just that complexity either mimics greatly or has created the opportunity for free thought from a electrical entity. Mm-hmm. And that brings up so many ethical questions, so many existential questions, um, so many questions about the power bill. Why is it so high? Yeah, <laughs> definitely that. <laughs> definitely that. <laughs> uh, considering the brain's the most expensive thing calorically for humans, you know, Hal 9000, he's sucking the power for sure. Well, yeah, we, we can only charge usually one phone at a time. <laughs> <laughs> he's the one that's been deactivating the microwave while I've been trying to reheat the... the, the <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Carton of meat paste. 
There's nothing like cold or lukewarm meat paste. Well, it, yeah, it's the inconsistency. It's yeah. you, you got a really hot patch, and then you hit a cold patch, and uh, that's just, it's already texturally uh, very unsettling. So the, the temperature variations adds to the, uh, the, the the true horror that is space flight food. <laughs> you need all the help you can get with these things. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again, and... We're always happy to, to hear from you, too. You can contact us at spacepodacy2001 at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at spacepodacy. On the Twitter at spacepodacy. Still on the Twitter. And from Glavius Base. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>